Good morning. It's five in the morning. Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF. And today we're going to cover three stories ripped from the headlines that we've curated just for our listeners and followers. Fulton County DA and Rockstar Hero ended up just 10 minutes during her part of a hearing in court yesterday. She said more in that 10 minutes about multiple defendants and her imminent decision to prosecute than, of course, we've heard from Jack Smith or Merrick Garland in the last, you know, two years. And we're going to dive into it with my co-anchor and former prosecutor, Karen Friedman at Diffalo. Then we're going to go to, boy, the Department of Justice must just be tired of winning. Winning! I mean, we're up to like 10-0 and 0 now. You go to trial against the Department of Justice, you're a Jan 6 insurrectionist, you're going to lose. And we're going to talk about the Oath Keepers, the second half of the Oath Keepers, who found that out the hard way in a Washington courthouse in front of a jury just this past week, having been convicted again for seditious conspiracy. You know, it's getting old talking about the Department of Justice winning. They went for the maximum count they could, and they won. And there's benefits to having been bold and courageous. And we should talk about it uh, again with our former prosecutor, Karen Friedman-Ignifolo. And then, um, as Karen and I were talking just before we started podcasting tonight, is Donald Trump like the luckiest guy in the world? The, the FBI agent and counterintelligence head in New York and cybersecurity department head in Washington, same guy, Robert McGonagall, apparently... But he wasn't, quote-unquote, investigating, in quotes, Donald Trump and a potential collusion between his campaign and the Russians to take down Hillary Clinton, which became known as the Mueller, ultimately the Mueller Report, Crossfire Hurricane, if you're really into projects with crazy novel-like names. That FBI agent apparently was on the Russian payroll the whole time, and at least a, a major oligarch connected directly to Putin, paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars to help him get out of a bind with the with the U.S. government. So, I mean, of all the FBI agents that have to be on the take, the one that's investigating Donald Trump is also the one that's ultimately on Putin's payroll. You can't make this stuff up. And then, because we have to, because it's in the news, uh, and we felt it was necessary, we're going to play the game of who has classified documents at their house or office this week. And today's contestant, come on down, Mike Pence. Apparently, all the former people in the in the uh, White House, the West Wing, from, from administrations past, decided that, hmm, maybe I should have somebody search my uh, home office and see if there's any classified folders in there, since there seems to be a, a big uproar about it. And Mike Pence is the latest one to reveal that he also has classified documents. We'll talk about that. And we'll talk about, just as a reminder, how it is not the same thing as Donald Trump's battle with the Department of Justice and the National Archives over the things that he stole. And we'll talk about why they're different. With today's show, and I'm joined every Wednesday with my co-anchor and friend, Karen Friedman at Nippolo. Karen, that's my opening. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm getting a lot of mileage lately on this former prosecutor thing. Last week I was, or 
was it last week? Yeah, last week I was on uh, CNN uh, to talk about the Alec Baldwin case. And as dumb luck would have it, I was in, they have like a, a waiting area they call a green room. And let's just say there was someone else there that was a former, um, who's formerly uh, on the Jan 6 committee. And I asked him to come on our podcast. So it's a long shot. Let's see if he'll, if he'll do it. But oh, wouldn't it be pretty amazing I know who it if is, I could? But I can't, wouldn't it be I'm not going to blow it. Wouldn't that be That's amazing? A good one. If, if, yep, that would be a really good one. Wait, that that guy was there to talk about Alec Baldwin? Or he was there no, for the next thing? No, <laughs> he was there. He was exactly. No, he was there for something else, and it was just funny because I didn't recognize him at first, and I was like, "Oh, are you here to talk about Alec Baldwin?" You know, and anyway, we we figured out who each other. We we introduced ourselves, but anyway, he said, "No, I'm." Mm, and, oh, exactly. And right. I said, "Oh, very do you want to be on my?" I said, "Do you want to be on my podcast?" <laughs> So when we'll you let see. us, I think I think people like this kind of stuff. And if they don't, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> we went we went back and forth on a little bit of a chain with you, and I called you Booker Booker Extraordinaire podcast <laughs> podcast Booker Extraordinaire. Just so everybody knows, I, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I always give credit where credit is due. Whatever takes credit for something, I'm not responsible for. And I like to um, I like to acknowledge and reward people in my life. So Karen uh, brought in. Amazing prosecutors as guests. Kara was able to land Alvin Brack. We might get side bands on the show one day. We're hoping wow. we some other prosecutors we might get on the show one day. So I'll come to Kara Freeman and Nicola and her connections. I brought in Robbie Kaplan because I had a connection for Robbie Kaplan. But look, this is what we're doing here. We're I'm yes, shameless, amazing. Just so you know. <laughs> I'll ask you any guys. <laughs> but I, that was a good show. No, but I am yeah. I am shameless. I am like, oh my yeah. God. It's a very good quality for um, for a podcast host, and and for everybody. I want let's just talk logistics. Then I'm going to get into the stories ripped from the headlines. Just so it's I think it's obvious after two and a half years of podcasting and maybe a year and a half with Karen, we're not often in the same room. We were once. Remember that time we did it together, Karen? That was fun. That was fun. So we had technical difficulties. We had crappy microphones that came with the podcast studio that we won't ever do again, but we're, we're going to do something like that again. i got a setup in my office in New York that I think will work for you and me, but we're not on, Ben and I are not in the same room. Ben and I are, at least Karen and I are sort of close in, in terms of we're within 50 miles of each other. Ben and I are, you know, whatever the distance between New York and uh, California is these days. And um, so what happens is uh, it, and we don't really, we, we're not, because we don't, we don't see each other's body language like we are in the same room. Occasionally we step on each other's words because, because I want to laugh at a joke she's made or she wants to comment about something with me or, and I just want everybody to know, we, we love doing the show and we love doing it together. And, um, we don't take offense to each other, like raising our hand or not raising our hand and button in and making a comment to make the show better or make the comment um, kind of continue the dialogue, but some of the stepping on each other's lines, so to speak, for those that were theater majors or thespians, is because we're not in the same room and we can't see each other, and there's a little bit of a nanosecond of a delay when you're doing it this way, but there's no other way to do it. We like doing it, you know. If I only could do it with people that were in my house, it would be, you know, like me, my dog who's sitting on the couch behind me. I mean, this is the way you got to do it. So, nobody take offense on how we produce the show, because we certainly don't. We, we love it. We 
it, it motivates us and propels us to come back each week. All right, enough about All right, get, anything get, on that get, to, get to the show. Get to the show, Popak. Come on. A, that is the show. I don't know if it, this is like Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. This is the show. It's part of the show. All right, let's talk about uh, the thing that people come here to talk about and listen to, which is news. News. Legal political news. Let's talk about Bonnie Willis. I will, I did a hot take on this. I know that, Karen, you're prepared for, for today's segment of the five turn it over to you in one minute. Bonnie Willis was in court this week in an hour and a half hearing. I got to watch it. On, it was a Zoom, a Zoom hearing. I got to watch it. Couldn't participate. I got to take notes. And the purpose of the hearing is that Judge McBurney wanted an oral argument, a hearing, after a briefing, about whether the special purpose grand jury that issued a report and also a recommendation that the report be published. Um, and I'm assuming it's like four times the size of the Jan 6 report, filled with witness testimony and tabs and appendix and all that. And their recommendations, I presume, although no one's seen this report except for Bonnie Willis and Judge McBurney, um, the question is, should it be uh, published into the public record on the public docket? The presumption is most everything in a courtroom, courthouse, ultimately gets put into the public record for the world to see, because that's our system of justice, except for things that are protected by secrecy laws, like the grand jury process, while it's still operating until it issues its indictment or no indictment, and other things that are, you know, kind of confidential in the business world or sensitive to the business world, like, I don't know, the, the, super, the, the secret formula for Coca-Cola, you know, things like that. And the media, you know, has a role in all of this. They, as Judge Middlebrooks, one of my favorite judges, people know, who just sanctioned Trump and Haba, Alina Haba, for a million dollars, he said, rightly so, that the that uh, journalists write the first draft of history. So it's okay that the media intervened and wanted to get their hands on the on the report. And in a little bit of a surprise, I thought, although I want to hear it from your perspective as a prosecutor, um, Bonnie Willis stood up. She spoke about 10 minutes out of a, out of 90. She let her colleague do most of the heavy lifting on some some uh, uh, discussions and debates with the judge about the esoteric body of law in Georgia about publication of a document. But she said the things that got all the headlines, which were, they don't want the report uh, published at, at this time. Because, and then she listed the reasons. First of all, she said there were multiple defendants. She didn't say maybe defendants. She didn't say there may be defendants. She said there are multiple defendants, and I'm concerned about them getting a fair trial. She said, I don't want an appeal. I don't want to buy an appeal. I don't want to give them grounds to say that their trial wasn't fair. Also very good prosecutorial approach. She also said, I don't want to be rushed. I don't want to be rushed to judgment. I've done things methodically up until now, and I'm making a decision about whether to... to uh, bring the indictment, and so I don't want that I don't want that impacting me. In fact, that it gets published, news media comes out, you know, and I get a lot of pressure on me. And then the last thing she said, which I then sat, then she sat down, the last thing she said was, um, Judge, there's only two people who have seen this report, and that's me, she pointed to herself, and you, and she pointed to Judge McBurney. And then she immediately said, you've seen the report, Judge, and you know my decision as to whether to seek an indictment is imminent. So in other words, you've seen what I've seen, Judge. 
you know, you know I'm not going to be sitting on this that long. And look, it, it's public. 17 and 19 targets um, have, or 17 and 19 people have been told that they're targets of the grand jury, a special purpose grand jury. And then Bonnie Willis saying her decision to seek an indictment from a regular grand jury is imminent. That's my sort of beginning takeaway. Karen, prosecutor, put a prosecutor hat on. What'd you think about Fawny Willis's performance? What'd you think about the issue? And would you, you, Karen Freeman Ignifolo, prosecutor extraordinaire, would you at this moment want that report published or not? Absolutely not. And I'll explain why. First of all, I thought your hot take on this was excellent. And it was great to have your perspective from, you, know, you were literally in the room, you know, whatever, virtually in the room. And so you were able to describe exactly what happened. And I thought that was excellent. And anyone who hasn't seen it should go and watch that to, to get a, a very detailed description of what happened. Um, no, but no prosecutor would like this to be released because what would happen is uh, that you're basically giving, she, she had to take the public, the public stance that she didn't want it released because if it does get released, the defendants will likely in the future say, I did not get a fair trial. There was no way that the I could get a fair jury here in Georgia because every one of them will have either read the report or read the media coverage about the report. And so there was no way to get a fair trial here. And so if the prosecutor was also saying, sure, go ahead and release it, that would also, that could hurt the case in that regard. So she had to take the position that she didn't want to release to just protect her record uh, for appeal later on down the road. Um, I agree with your take on this, that there's no doubt an indictment is coming and uh, there will be numerous defendants. I, I don't think her decision that she's working on right now is whether or not to bring a case. It's what charges and which defendants is what she is bringing. I, I was curious why she said there were only two people who've seen the report, her and the judge, because I, I assume all the grand jurors would have also seen it. And, uh, and I'm surprised there were no, because they wrote it, right? So they voted on it. So I was surprised why there was no leak from that. Um, the decisions, the, the one thing that I did not quite understand is why she does, what, what, what's the holdup? Because this has been going on for a while and they've been, it's not like the witnesses came to the grand jury on their own. The Fulton County DA's office chose which witnesses to present, chose which testimony to bring, wrote the report, knows what the witnesses said. I just don't know what they are waiting for. Um, that just seemed odd to me. So I think, uh, I, I did a little um, legal research reading about this this morning, and I'm pretty sure that in Georgia, you can put hearsay in the grand jury, which I, well, the reason I looked for that was because in New York, you cannot in New York State to charge someone with a crime, hearsay is not allowed. So you have to have, you're going to charge someone who's talking about a case or saying I was assaulted. The person who got assaulted has to be the person to testify under oath in the grand jury in order to bring a case against someone for assault. Federally, hearsay goes in the grand jury. You don't need that. You, you can have an FBI agent say, I talked to someone who was assaulted. They said they were assaulted. I saw their injuries. And that's enough. You don't need um, the live person. Hearsay is enough. And Grant and Georgia is similar to the FBI. And so 
for all we know, there is an agent or an officer or whatever, an investigator in Georgia, literally sitting in the grand jury and reading the report, reading the witness testimony and saying, this is charges should be brought against this person or that person. For all we know, that's happening right now as we speak. So she doesn't have to convene any special grand jury. There are grand juries that are always sitting and she could just walk into any one of those and, and bring a case questions? if she wanted. Sure. Is it, is it then, you, uh, um, that was, that's a fascinating observation about the differences about New York, and I want to get to that in a minute. But here's my question. Does that mean for you then, since Georgia is closer to federal in terms of uh, the, the quality of witness testimony that can be brought into the room for, um, for indictment, my working position or supposition is that the when she gets her goes before her regular grand jury to get her indictment, which is the next step, and, and people are worried about it. Oh, it's going to be a long delay. No, as as Karen just outlined, she, they can step into any ongoing grand jury and say, "Hi, we're we're here. We're convened for this. Now we're going to talk about all of these other things." I think she can use and present the uh, report. And not have to, of course, bring in the seventy witnesses again. I think she can she can read the transcripts and and the evidence that was developed by the investigatory grand jury, special purpose grand jury, and then seek her indictment. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think legally that that's what I was suggesting. I think she could do yeah. that. I mean, she'll have to have somebody do that. She can't do it, right? She'll have to have an agent or an investigator. Do, oh, that's do the that. reader you're talking about. Yeah, yeah somebody else would have to do, would have to do that. But the the thing that that strategically, what she will probably do. So you don't know who. So grand juries are usually uh, twenty three people uh, typically who sit in a room and listen to it, and you have to get a majority. So, um, so 12 people to vote to indict. And Georgia is a purple state, right? There's a lot of red, you know, I, I don't know, Atlanta, not so much, but, but you don't know who the people are. And this is a big decision. And so even though she could do that in New York, you could easily, if, if you were allowed to have your say in New York, you could go in and do that. And Trump and Giuliani and everybody else under the sun would be indicted. Um, there are a couple reasons why you'd put witnesses in, though. One would be to lock them in under oath. You want them to testify and be locked into a statement under oath. But she has that already with a special purpose grand jury. They all came in and testified under oath. So she already has that. But she might want to put certain witnesses on to, to basically go in and tell the grand jury and look them in the eye and say, this is what happened and this is what they did. Because it... Otherwise, this is such a big decision. You don't want to have them say, you know what? I don't know. I didn't see those witnesses myself. I don't, I don't, I'm not indicting Trump or I'm not indicting Giuliani or whatever. So I think she will put in some live witnesses just to make sure. The other thing is it's, you talked about this in your hot take that she's an expert in RICO and uh, RICO is the Racketeering Influence Corrupt Practices Act. You know, it's basically what they charge for mafia and other organizations that require a structure and it requires overt acts in furtherance, you know, of uh, like a pattern act. And, and you have to have done something um, toward, toward your crime, toward your criminal enterprise. And it, that's a complicated charge. And that would take time because there you do need to put a lot more evidence in 
than just a witness, a phone call, you know, that kind of stuff. So it seems like this is going to be a big indictment that's coming. To me, there's no doubt that it's imminent. You know, as you pointed out in, in both your hot take and here, she, she didn't say, you know, her words, you listen to her words, you know, she didn't say if there's an indictment, you know, she didn't say, you know, potential future defendants, you know, that kind of stuff. Her language is very clear, right? And she her said... Her body language, <laughs> not to interrupt, but her body language, I, oh, did you, well, I saw the video. Her body language was worth a thousand words. I mean, she was a, you know, it was interesting. I haven't really seen much of her in the courtroom. So I had my own impression kind of of her beforehand. And uh, she was no, she was no nonsense. She was a little bit, um, I don't want to, I don't want to ascribe emotional content to somebody that I don't know well, um, but she was a little abrupt, um, which is fine with me. I mean, she was no nonsense at all business. I don't think she wanted to be there. I don't think, I think she thought it wasn't a hard decision to make not to release it that her word in that area should sort of be final. Although the judge is struggling and he made it clear from the bench. He did not rule from the bench. He will not. It said he will not rule from the bench because he needs to be thoughtful about this and give the parties time to appeal his decision because he's not going to release the report. Even if he sides with the media, he's not going to immediately release the report and not give her time to go to appellate court to stop it because she, he knows once that genie is out of the bottle, it's out. So he's going to be very, he's been thoughtful about this whole thing from the very, very beginning. She seemed a little bit like, you know, why am I here? I don't want this release and that should sort of be the end of the story. But the thing that I picked up the most content from is when at the very, very end before she sat down, that's what I said at the top of the pod. I said, she said, so two people that have seen this, she, I think she meant two people in the room that day. Mm -hmm. Two people in this room have seen this. Me and you. You've seen it, Judge. She, she didn't wink at him, but she almost did. And you know, based on what's in there, my decision is imminent. I mean, whatever is in there, you know, whether it's a recommendation from the special purpose grand jury to indict Donald Trump, you know, uh, 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 Mark Meadows, Lindsey Graham and, and Rudy Giuliani, which are the big four of the top 20 targets or so that she's identified, you know, it, it is it is burning a hole in her pocket and she wants to make this decision and it's going to be big. It's not, trust me, when she indicts, as Karen has outlined, and when she goes to the, the regular grand jury, gets her indictment, we're not going to scratch our heads with, who are these people? that she just indicted. I've never heard of these people. It's not going to be, maybe it's the fake electors, but that's not going to be the top of the pecking order. This, she did not get this far because she wants people to go, who? She, if she's got the goods on Donald Trump, everything that we know about Fawny Willis is that she's got the, you know what, to bring this indictment. Period. Is that, did anybody question that she that she doesn't have the brass to bring the indictment? She will bring the indictment if the evidence leads her to that conclusion. She doesn't want to be rushed. She doesn't want the media to make the decision for her. She doesn't want people taking five shots. The reason I want to ask you this: the reason I said at the beginning there was a little bit, there was some speculation among probably people who don't know anything about prosecuting cases. That's why I want to ask you that maybe she wants a portion of the report released. So that it would give her some political cover when she made her when she made her decision, but I see I know you're not in that camp, right? Well, no, I'm not in that camp. I I don't think she she doesn't want pressure. Politics 
in a prosecution don't mix together. And she, I don't think she wants pressure from anywhere either way. And look, the report voted on whether or not it should be public. We have no idea if it said whether or not each person should be charged and with what. And what if she makes a different determination that Giuliani should be charged or not charged with something? I mean, I, I just think, I just think um, you don't you don't want you know the other thing too is she might want to put some of these witnesses in the grand jury like we talked about. And if you release the report, presumably it's going to have who testified and what they said, and that could lead to witness intimidation, and which we know that Trump is not above doing. So for many reasons, I think she doesn't want it released. And she wants to just be able to, to let any indictment speak for itself, which is really what a prosecutor should do. I, I suspect also that the judge, because it's such a tricky question about whether to release it, because you know the media has a First Amendment right, and that's why courtrooms have to be open and everything has to be public. And, and it's, a, it's a First Amendment issue. Uh, that that comes into play about keeping something sealed and you could be reversed on that and obviously this judge doesn't want to get that wrong and there's not a lot of case law to 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 lean on and so i suspect he's going to reserve decision and not make a decision because then he can't be appealed and let fani do her because that's why that's why i think she kept saying over and over again it's imminent it's imminent judge right. i think she was signaling to judge. him I think she was signaling to him, you don't need to make a decision, Judge. Reserve. Very let good. me do my thing, and then you can do whatever you that, need to do. That is a very excellent observation that comes from your years of experience. And she's basically saying, just, Judge, it's going to be quick. You don't have to make any quick. So don't force my hand. I love that. Let me, speaking of a prosecutor's uh, instincts, here's, here's the dumbest, I don't, know, I don't know how you could say the dumbest comment of the week for Donald Trump. There's just so many. But his comment... I love, I love his comments. I've been exonerated. You know, Mueller report, totally exonerated, even though Mueller in his report said, I'm not exonerating Donald Trump. Here, it actually had the temerity to have a, a spokesperson come out and say, uh, we're not going to participate in the McBurney uh, hearing on the issue of the release of the special purpose grand jury report. And since we weren't asked to be interviewed well, compelled to contest it, I think it's a better way to put it, in front of the special purpose grand jury. We can only conclude that it completely exonerates our client. All right, let me get this straight. In your view of history in criminal justice, defendants who are the targets have to come in and give testimony, or the whole grand jury process is somehow invalidated, or because you weren't as the actual criminal or, 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 uh, or about to be indicted criminal, you didn't, you weren't asked to participate in the grand jury process. It, it must be exonerating in your behalf. I mean, sir, Karen, did you read that comment? Yeah, that's, that's not the way things work. And it, again, I can only speak for how it's done in New York. In New York, uh, any person who testifies in the grand jury is given what's known as transactional immunity. So it means it is just by going in there, you cannot ever be prosecuted for the crime that you're talking about. And so prosecutors in New York are very careful about who they put in the grand jury because you don't want to inadvertently immunize someone who you thought was a witness, but turns out he's the shooter or whatever. That's you know, right. so you got to really right. be careful before you put someone in. I don't know if it's that that's the case in, in but Georgia. But he would take the Fifth Amendment anyway. He would never have testified in front of the grand jury. He would have taken right. the Fifth. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So another one of those, you know, media moments for Donald Trump. Okay, let's move on to our second segment in the podcast today, which is to talk about that the um, Department of Justice can walk and chew a lot of gum at the same time. They can try cases simultaneously with different prosecutor teams all over the country in the same courthouse um, at the same time with different FBI agents, different people assigned. They can do that four, five, six times simultaneously or more while they're arresting people like active duty Marines in the intelligence community last week who thought, oh, two years, they haven't caught my social media where I posted about barging into the Capitol on Jan 6th. They're going to arrest you too. Um, and they're going to win. They're going to go for the highest crime possible, high risk, high reward for, for the prosecutors. And they're going to win. So this, people might be saying, might be saying to themselves, Did we, didn't we finish with the Oath Keepers already? I thought they were all convicted in November, but you may re- you may recall from prior Legal AF podcasts, if not, I'll tell you, that Judge Meta, who we like a lot on this podcast because of the way that he rules and the way he runs the courtroom, he literally believed that he could not have eight or ten defendants in his courtroom at the same time because of the amount of people that would require to be sitting at tables, and he didn't have the room, so he split them about six or eight months ago into two separate trials. He put Kelly Meggs and Stuart Rhodes, the one-eyed leader of the, of the uh, Proud Boys, um, sorry, the Oath Keepers, into one trial, which concluded in November with a conviction for, for uh, Rhodes and Meggs um, on seditious conspiracy, and the other two on obstruction, of the two people that were joined there. And then he had four more left, and so they went to trial. And now the trial, after five weeks of trial, came back with a verdict this week in, a, in, a, in front of Judge Maida, in front of a different jury. Um, and this one involved uh, gentlemen by the name of Minuto, Hackett, Moshal, and Vallejo. And they are now convicted of seditious conspiracy in front of a second jury by this Levi- this. Uh, you know, rolling on, you know, just keeps rolling along Department of Justice and just keeps winning. And um, this one had a cooperating witness who testified. The only interesting thing for me that I'll turn it over to you, Karen, is that this is one where the Vallejo, particularly, was sitting across at a motel across the Potomac. But he was like the armorer. He had all the weapons that they were going to bring in at a moment's notice with this rapid reaction force or whatever cockamamie name they gave it. But they were going to arm the attackers and the rest of these idiots, these insurrectionists, these uh, anti-patriots, they were the ones that kind of did that flying wedge, what they call a, a, a stack, to kind of push their way into the capital under military training and technique and and, and actually burst their way in, into the capital. And so now they're convicted of seditious conspiracy. Um, what did you think about, um, you can talk about the trial, but I, I particularly I wanted to ask you, what did you think about the Department of Justice and its record and going for the highest charge, which is a very difficult charge to make, swinging for the fences and actually obtaining it and, and accomplishing it in front of two separate juries, while at the same time, just up the hall in front of a different judge, the Proud Boys are also being prosecuted, including Enrico Tario for same thing, seditious conspiracy. Talk a little bit about, because you, you know, as the number two in the Manhattan DA's office, 
I know that you had, at the same time, going on in the office, multiple trials, high-profile trials, not just one. Talk about that. Like, what is it like? What do you think it's like for the Department of Justice that so many simultaneous high-profile trials going on at the same time and, and being able to accomplish all that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's very common in uh, big offices like the Department of Justice or the Manhattan DA's office to have many trials going on at the same time. Sometimes we'd have as many as 10 trials at the same time, if not more. I mean, it's it's not it's not really a big issue because different lawyers handle different cases and, you know, it's in different courtrooms, everybody's set up that way. And in this particular instance, however, you would have had to, they, these prosecutors had to coordinate because this was one big giant investigation and they would just decide, okay, you take these group, you, you, you know, I, I'm sure they broke it up where, you, where some, certain people took the Oath Keepers, certain people took the Proud Boys, other people took other people. There, there are ways to break it up and that's how they did it. But look, they had to coordinate with each other because as they are interviewing witnesses, you might, as a prosecutor, get information that about your case, but it turns out it's exculpatory, exculpatory for someone else's case that's called Brady. And so, but because you're one big office, you are you are considered to have knowledge of that, and so you have to make sure you give that information so to to the other prosecutor. So it's in very very important in a case this big to have coordination with the prosecution, the supervision, the investigators. There would be some kind of way that they're keeping track of everything, whether it's having certain investigators that cross over or certain databases with information. I don't know, somehow they're gonna be doing this so that so that they can coordinate and share information. You know, it's similarly what somebody who's investigating the, the Oath Keepers and, and talking to that cooperator may have information that's helpful against the Proud Boys and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so there's going to be a lot of sharing of information, but the ability to try multiple cases at the same time is, is really what, what uh, prosecutors like this do every single day. Um, what was interesting about this case to me, what I thought was interesting was, was as you said, for, for just how many people fit in the courtroom reasons uh, and also how many how many lawyers do you want to cross-examine witnesses reasons I mean if you have eight defendants don't forget you have eight lawyers and that means you have eight openings you have eight closings you have eight cross-examinations of each witness that just becomes unruly untenable and very clunky so for very various reasons judges will usually split courtrooms up and have four or five, I'd say, is, is the maximum in multiple defendant cases. Um, and they just do it for, for judicial economy reasons. And what was interesting to me, though, about this is in the first trial, don't forget, there were five defendants and only the two top ones were convicted of, um, you know, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs were convicted of seditious conspiracy. The other three were not. And, and I don't know because I wasn't in the jury room, but I think probably the equation there was that even though the others were definitely guilty of seditious conspiracy, they're not like Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs who are higher up and more guilty. And so sometimes they just make a compromise and do something like that. Whereas here, the four defendants who, who came together, although yes, one of them was across the river guarding the, the 
know, the, the weapons, but he was standing ready to show up at any time. These four were more similar. There wasn't like the Stuart Rhodes of, of the pack. These were more similar. And so all four of them were convicted of seditious conspiracy. I, I think if the other three had been with these four, I wonder whether they would all have been convicted. But it's clear that the jury made a slight distinction there between the, the, the guys in charge and the guys following orders, you know, and so, but they didn't, but that different jury didn't make that distinction here. And so, you know, it's, it's all about the jury, right? It's all who you get for the jury. But, but I thought and, that was the interesting the part about yeah, this. Yeah, that, that, that's a great observation. That I, I agree with you. If you put like, if you put similar, similar situated people together, they'll come out, if the jury's in your favor as a prosecutor, they're going to, they're going to lump them together for the prosecution. And it sounds like you're right. I think there's a compromise sort of verdict, but you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to, you know, the jury's supposed to make a decision. Cases are supposed to rise and fall for individuals. Even if they're all there together, they're supposed to get individual justice. But that's not the way it really works in a jury deliberation room, as you just uh, astutely uh, pointed out. And um, I think the Department of Justice learns every time they win, or in the, you know, the case of the other trial, they lost a couple of counts, but they won overall. Every time they win, or every time they do a trial, they learn more. They're getting better at it. They know what is turning on a jury, what's turning off a jury, um, what evidence is powerful and resonating and vibrating with them, and, which, and, and resonating with them, and which isn't. And uh, they will now learn from this about, and they'll probably fight harder about having maybe the leaders Maybe the leaders should have been in their own trial. The four others in this trial, maybe, maybe there should have been three trials based on your analysis, Karen. And that's something that the, that the um, DOJ will be mindful of. But the lesson for me, in talking to the insurrectionists out there, you want to go to trial against the Department of Justice? First of all, historically, from a criminal justice standpoint, by the time you have been indicted and refused to take a plea that's been offered to you, the chances of you being convicted are supremely high, putting aside whether you're a Jan 6 insurrectionist or not. I mean, you get convicted for it. If the government goes to a trial with you, you're going to lose. That's just the statistics. And now, uh, it may not be as high as, you know, 0 for 10, but it's, if you're, if you're not taking the plea, you are going to lose to this Department of Justice and a jury in Washington, D.C. On, on Jan 6 issues. And all of your arguments that I've seen some of them make on the courthouse steps afterwards, to the extent that they're let out. Meta did not let this group leave and go out the front door. He sent them into home, strict home confinement, limited use of the Internet, and we'll see you for your sentencing. But an earlier conviction this week, another judge, Judge Cooper, he thought, you know, with the, the, uh, the guy that put his feet up on Pelosi's desk but also had a stun gun, he said, nah, I'm going to let him go home. He can come back in March for sentencing. And then he went out the front steps with his wife and started saying, I, I, you know, I need a jury of my peers. I can't, this liberal jury in Washington's not going to do it for me. You know, they all want to be, they want to look at a jury that's comprised of Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Racists, KKK, you know, then they think they'll get off. Fortunately, that's not how the justice system works. So you, you've got that. <clears throat> and in a crazy way, in this crazy the crazy cabal that's that's um, developed. You said the Department of Justice often works together in teams. You know who's also working together, but it's not working for them, is the defendants and their families. 
when when the guy that just got sentenced earlier in the week, who was the uh, Pelosi desk guy, sitting next to him, and I talked about this on a hot take, sitting next to his wife, was the following rogues gallery of crazy. It was Ashley Babbitt's mother. Um, no, I'm not making this up. Ashley Babbitt's mother and Rico Tario, the proud boy on trial, his mother, I guess she got bored with his trial. She decided to come over and watch the jury verdict and conviction of somebody else. Next to Guy Reffitt's wife, who's become sort of this, the leader on the internet of all this, all this wackiness. And they're all sitting there together. I mean, again, back to the, if you wrote a screenplay with all these people in it, you know, the producers say, cut that. No one, no one would believe that. So they're all working together. And they're all trying trial strategies together. None of them are working. Um, sometimes they take the stand and try to tell the jury that they were just effing idiots caught up in the moment. They're accidental terrorists and accidental seditionists. The jury doesn't buy any of that. But um, in, in a weird, corrupt way, they work together. And yeah, they well, they're, counting on, they're, they're counting on yeah. 2024 pardons. Uh, that's what I, they my think. heart stopped. My heart I stopped know, but there. that's yeah. in their in their delusional mind. Uh, yes, I know. It's the same. It's the same thinking that they're waiting for JFK to return, and and Trump is. No, it's. I, I'm with you. Oh, we have to move on. <laughs> Just from my own blood pressure, we have to move on. Um, let's move to our our uh, our final story, talking about something that no Hollywood producer would ever produce: <laughs> the story of an FBI agent who's heading a major division and department at the FBI, and is charged with participating as a leader in the Russia collusion investigation to find out if anybody in Donald Trump's inner circle and campaign is coordinating with the Russians to try to bring down Hillary Clinton. And who better to be on the, uh, on the, on the uh, double agent side of all of this than Charles McGonagall, a now indicted former FBI agent, former special agent of counterintelligence in the FBI New York office. He also held the title of chief of cybersecurity for the FBI in D.C. And he is literally, literally, you're doing the Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation. He was, uh, he got the phone call about somebody in the Trump campaign, George Papadopoulos, who claimed that he had an inside relationship with a Russian diplomat and they were going to talk about the Hillary Clinton emails and the email server and use that against her together with the Russians on behalf of Donald Trump. That that sounds familiar to you. That was the uh, the flame that lit the fuse and became ultimately Operation Crossfire Hurricane, which was the FBI investigation ultimately led by Robert Mueller to see if Donald Trump and his campaign were colluding directly or indirectly, wittingly or unwittingly, with the Russians. We all sort of have a working theory that the Russians and their trolls and their operatives as part of their espionage um, to, to change the hearts and minds of people wanted Donald Trump to win because they thought there was a better opportunity to, for him to play ball with them um, and wanted Hillary Clinton, who was virulently anti-Soviet Union, anti-Russia, to lose. That's our working theory. Now, it looks like um, we'll never know if how how uh, corrupted the investigation was because Charles McGonagall decided to get on the payroll of Oleg Deripaska, 
Oleg Deripaska, which apparently was profiled at 60 Minutes recently, is a Russian oligarch. He's a aluminum baron, uh, very tied to Putin, who paid McGonagall while he was in the FBI, while he was participating in Operation Hurricane, $250,000 to help get him off the sanctions list for the United States. So he's basically on Putin's payroll at the same time that he's allegedly a leader in, uh, in co-in charge of Operation Crossfire Hurricane, looking into the Trump collusion. Um, so what do you think, Karen? <laughs> what, what do you think about all of this and what it means for Donald Trump, if anything? Yeah, so this was a shocker. You know, this is this isn't just an FBI agent. This is the special agent in charge. They call it a SAC. You know, special agent in charge, which is a supervisor of or a chief of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York. That is so high up. And this guy had top secret, sensitive, super, you know, sensitive, compartmentalized, whatever. You have this, these, that, this individual, this Charles McGonagall would have had the most, the most highest level of uh, information, of top secret information, and the most amount of information about who these people are, who these oligarchs are, who they're connected to, what the sanctions, the Russian sanctions laws actually are, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. I mean, honestly, he's this is this is as close to a, a traitor or a spy as you could possibly get. I, I wouldn't be surprised if further uh, indictments, superseding indictments will come with further investigation, because this is this is huge, in my opinion. And I, I think when you look you know, just, just what they talked about, there was two different indictments that, that he was charged with, one in New York, one in D.C. Um, and, and the New York one had to do with violating sanctions and money laundering and conspiracy. And in, in D.C. It was what you talked about, taking $225,000 of secret cash payments while still working for the FBI. Uh, I think this is just the beginning. I think this is going to get bigger. It's huge, and and not he he's someone who would have known. It's it, you know he's not just moonlighting on the side, which whatever he he knows exactly what he's doing. He had a shell corporation that was that he used to try to obfuscate the money and who was doing what. I mean, this is this is corruption and potentially even espionage and. Uh, this is a big deal. Um, there was also there was also an allegation of um, that that he got one of he got someone's daughter a kind of a, a sweetheart position at the NYPD as an intern, and she was bragging there that she had close ties to an FBI agent that that raised raised eyebrows. I think that's going to come out with the with the NYPD. I, I think there's just much more to this story that we're going to keep learning about. But this is this is bad. Uh, to answer your question, what does this mean? I think that the Department of Justice and um, I think the Department of Justice now has to look at every case he's ever been involved in, every investigation he's ever been involved in. And if I was defense, I am a defense attorney. If I was a defense attorney representing somebody who had a case involving McGonagall, first thing I would do is I'd bring a motion that my client was wrongfully convicted, that he lied, that there's, that, you know, I, I would question the um, integrity of my conviction because at this point, I don't know how you can trust him or believe him. He's, he's corrupt. He's a double agent. I mean, he's so many potential things that are, that are 
that I we don't know all of the details yet, but this was a shocker for me. This this was something out of a you know one of those novels that you know John Le, Le Carre novel or whatever. I just I just yeah. couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, it seems to be potentially the equivalent of Alter James um, and the CIA, but for the FBI. Um, and you're right. I think they have to go back and look at every one of the investigations. And the, the one who gets sort of off the hook is it's not so much the investigations that he corrupted that led to people's convictions. I mean. I, I assume they're going to look at the investigations that he corrupted in terms of Operation Cross, uh, Hurricane Crossfire, Crossfire Hurricane, and yeah, then whether he, he took his he took his foot off the pedal and shaped the result to his liking to help you know basically his uh, Russian handlers to take the eye off the ball and get them out of the spotlight about the connection because there was ultimately a conclusion that that um, I mean Mueller's report has been you know, um, has been poured over in Talmudic fashion to try to figure out what the heck he was talking about in terms of his recommendations about what he found. But he did, you know, while he concluded that he didn't have enough for a crime on Trump and others for Russia conclusion, he also made it clear that he did not find that Trump was blameless and nor was he exonerating him in his recommendation. But, you know, to, if we find out, as you said, from follow-up investigation, that, um, you know, it's the call not made, the witness not interviewed, the, you know, the, the follow-up not performed, that um, helps, um, that the body of work that results from it is totally infected by a corrupted turncoat double agent in the form of Charles McConaughey. And we don't know the total impact in injury to investigations, including the Trump investigation about Russian collusion um, that comes from this. And I think you and I are going to be reporting on Mr. McGonagall uh, for a long, long time on Legal AF. So why don't we um, move to our last uh, topic for today? Well, at last, but we're going to do a special Easter egg at the end for those that we usually have. Our audience usually stays with us for the whole podcast, but <laughs> there's going to be a special, special Easter egg at the end. Stay tuned. Um, but let's talk about the one that's on the books, which is um, Vice President Pence. Come on down. You're the next one that's got classified documents hidden somewhere that you didn't know were there or have now been disclosed. And he, he did exactly what Joe Biden did. He said, oh, they're there. I'm going to have my lawyers contact the Department of Justice and the House Judiciary Committee and everybody else and say, I got them. Pick them up. Didn't know they were there. And uh, sorry about that. My bad. Okay, um, so you got you got Biden, who had a similar issue and reaction from his 50 years of service to our country, including two terms as vice president and one term as president. All this happened before he was president, and he had a couple things in his boxes, all right, in different places. He's dealing with it. He's got lawyers that he hired privately. He's working with the Department of Justice and their special prosecutor, special counsel. He's letting the FBI spend 13, 14 hours running through his house. He's probably going to let him do the same thing at Rehoboth, his beach house in Delaware. Okay, that's that's Biden. Pence, okay, good on him. He found classified documents, and, and he dutifully reported it. And I'm sure if every former uh, president or vice president is still alive, including George W. Bush and all the rest, I'm sure there's a couple now that I understand how loosey-goosey this classified document stuff has been in terms of document retention and preservation on the way out, 
I'm sure you'll find something in everybody's boxes. But um, Karen, add to that, but then let, let's, let's get to the thing that everybody that watches us cares about. How is this different or the same as what Donald Trump did? And why should Donald Trump continue to be prosecuted while all these other people also effed up, so to speak, with classified documents? Why? That's the question that they're asked on the street, dinner parties, over pizza, with their friends. Like, see, everybody does it. Why is, why is uh, you know, the big orange being criminally prosecuted? Why? That's, that's why they come to this show, Karen. Why? Well, there are two questions, right? There's the legal question, and then there's the political question. And the legal question, as everybody has talked about and we've talked about and, and you and Ben have talked about ad nauseum, is really totally different scenario, right? You've got you've got Biden who's cooperated 100% with everybody, and you've got Pence who, who did it on his own and turned, turned things over, and then you've got Trump who refused to give stuff back, you know, lied to investigators about their existence, had an affidavit sworn uh, that that, that they looked and there wasn't there, et cetera, et cetera. So, so these are completely different scenarios legally. That being said, politically, I think the classified document possession case is unlikely to be brought by the Department of Justice, given how widespread and loosey-goosey this is. And I don't think anyone knew. I think that uh, this has to change. You know, there's, I've heard people say we, we classify, we over-classify too much, but also we don't keep track of classified secret documents, which is outrageous, right? This shouldn't happen. It can't happen. Nobody should be able to take stuff home and lose it for 13 years or whatever it is that's happening. Um, so I think that's going to, something's going to come of that for sure. But politically, I don't see uh, any prosecutor bringing a case against Trump about possession of the documents, given how widespread this is and how the public has just decided, see, everybody does it. However, there's one caveat. I do think that Jack Smith and Merrick Garland can and should still prosecute Trump for obstruction of justice. Because that, so forget the possession of classified documents and, and whether or not that is a crime. There really is a crime that he should be prosecuted for probably along with other things. I'm not sure it's its own thing, or, or maybe if it is its own indictment, it's unsealed at the same time as the others, who knows? But obstruction of justice, which, because what he did there is once he was told there are classified documents, we know they're there, he refused to give them back. He lied to investigators about their existence. He knew that they were there and then had someone certify that they looked and they weren't there. And I, I just think he, that... He moved them from room to room with a video surveillance yes. footage yes, that did. demonstrates that the day before the, or the moment before the Department of Justice arrived for a meeting, yeah. they were moved. Right? That's true. And, and, and look, the Department of Justice already has established in their search warrant that there was probable cause that those documents were there, right, um, to search at Mar-a-Lago. So there is probable cause, and the probable cause is that a, some crime occurred and that there is evidence of that crime there. So I, I do think that uh, that obstruction charge is potentially still alive. However, given the, 
political analysis of now that everybody does it, I, I'm not sure that anyone would bring that case standalone or as the first case. I think I thought before that the Mar-a-Lago Mar case was, was simple and they would just bring that case, but I no longer believe that given given this, um, well, everybody does it, everybody has it. Yeah, here, oh yeah, I, I like that, but I like, let's talk about obstruction for a minute. Then I'll give you my view. First of all, I think it, it's also going to depend on some other developments that are happening here in terms of um, the pace of other prosecutions. For instance, the weather in the room may change for Jack Smith if Bonnie Willis indicts Donald Trump for something in the next 60 days. I'm not saying it takes pressure off of him, but, you know, she's out of the gate first and she prosecutes first. I'm yep. not, she's not going to get a conviction first, but she'll prosecute first. That's that sort of breaks the glass ceiling. And it's a good I agree thing, with though. that completely. It's a it's a good thing that Phony Willis breaks the glass ceiling and is the first one to do that. That's fun. Secondly, you're so right about about obstruction because if you'll remember, and if not, I'll remind everybody else that watches the show that when the press conference to announce the appointment of the special counsel. Jack Smith, who, who unfortunately was not there at the time because he broke his leg and was still mending in the, in the Netherlands. But when Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and the other senior leaders of the Department of Justice took the podium, Merrick Garland, uh, I lost count, but he mentioned obstruction and obstruction of justice at least half a dozen times. I think it actually got up to about 10 or 11 in a 12 or 13 minute press conference. He never said the words Espionage Act. He never said all the other ones that we've talked about for the things that Donald Trump said uh, uh, that we think uh, Donald Trump did or laws that he violated. Even though we know from the unsealed um, parts of the application for the search warrant and affidavits of support that there were multiple, at least three laws that were alleged to have been violated in front of the magistrate judge only thing that Merrick Garland said consistently was obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. Now, he could not have known at the time. Well, no, let me, I have to correct myself. We now know from reporting, this is interesting, I want to get your view on this one. We now know from reporting that even though the world did not know about Joe Biden's um, classified document problem, that just before the a press conference to announce Jack Smith, there is one person who did know about it, at least as it existed at that time, which was about 10 pages of documents. And that was Merrick Garland, because we know the timeline now. The Biden folks informed Merrick Garland just before the press conference, a day or two before the press conference, about the existence of the uh, classified documents. So he knew it taking the, taking the podium. He didn't know he was going to appoint a special counsel. He didn't know how big the problem was. But he knew it. And maybe one of the reasons he talked about obstruction so much is that if he ever had, a, had, had to stand before a podium again, or in this case, uh, Jack Smith stand before a podium again, and talk about differences, in factual differences between one president and another, he had a little bit of a cover. What do you think about that? Hundred percent. I mean, 
he's a really smart, deliberative person. And his words are carefully chosen. He's not a loosey-goosey kind of person. And I think you're 100% right. I mean, he used that word, obstruction, which is in the title of the statute that he'd be violating. It's 18 United.